0: The Tom Woods Show, episode 1622. Prepare to set fire to the index card of allowable opinion. Your daily dose of liberty education starts here. The Tom Woods Show. Folks, if you're considering homeschooling, you know I recommend the self-taught Ron Paul curriculum, for which I created 400 videos. It's an excellent education in all the standard subjects, plus personal finance for teens, how to be an effective public speaker, how to run a home business, the kinds of things nobody teaches but they darn well should. Not to mention it's self-taught so you get your sanity back as a parent. Make sure you join at my special link because only there do you get my $160 worth of free bonuses you can't get anywhere else. Check it out at ronpaulhomeschool.com. Hey everybody, Tom Woods here. I'm very glad to share with you today an episode I did of Part of the Problem, Dave Smith's podcast. Now, you've got to know Dave Smith if you listen to the Tom Wood Show for any length of time. Dave is a comedian and a great one. His Libertas comedy special spent three weeks as the number one comedy recording on iTunes when it came out, so tremendous. And his Part of the Problem is a wonderful libertarian podcast that has just exploded over the past couple of years, So I highly recommend that. This was a bonus episode that he did for his audience, and I am sharing it with you. It has to do with, well, current events, and if you're following along this podcast day by day, you know what those current
1: events are. So here we go. Hope you enjoy it. Tom, thank you for coming back on Part of the Problem. Good to see you.
0: Dave, I love Part of the Problem, and I'm so glad to be with you.
1: And of course if anyone didn't hear me and Tom uh just recorded an episode for his show uh the other day so that's also up if you haven't listened to that one uh, uh yet go get yourself some more content this is a it, it turns out that as society collapses it's actually not so bad for podcasters this is everybody's home they got nothing to do and we can work from home so there's a silver lining for us
0: it does work, and, and and it
1: also gives us plenty to talk
0: about, <laughs> to be yeah. honest with you. I just did an episode with Jack Spirko, who has more episodes than, than I think you and I put together, Dave. Uh, he's got 2,600 episodes of the Survival Podcast, and I had him on my 31st episode. I'm now on episode 1619, so it's been almost seven years since I've had him on last, and I thought, Global pandemic, pretty good time to get the prepper back on. So there's plenty to talk about, that's for sure.
1: Yeah, no, the, no question about that. Yeah, those those preppers aren't being laughed at so much these days. They're yeah, seeming I more know, and more I know. brilliant. It's, it's
0: one of these things where, all right, Jack, I know I should have been doing what you told me, <laughs> but <laughs> sure. he was very gracious and no, none of the told you so stuff.
1: Well, I, I can imagine what it must be like to be like anybody who's a serious prepper just watching like on on YouTube or on the news like people fighting over toilet paper and stuff like that and be like oh yeah you thought you thought I was the crazy one all these years yeah,
0: yeah exactly
1: so you've um there's there's been a lot of uh craziness from all sides of uh, people's perspectives of this whole pandemic and what's going on and there's a lot of people when you take a fairly nuanced mature approach as you have, you end up kind of making everybody angry at you. Everybody's so, angry. Yeah. So the people who are like, What are you talking about? This virus is a hoax. I can't believe you're giving in to the fear. I've been I've been getting a little bit of that myself. Then people on the other side are like, You you have to lock everything down and you can't even ask questions about, you know destroying the economy or government overreach or things like that those are the the people on the other side and it seems like i've only seen like a few people and of course you're one of the handful of reasonable people who are like hey um this virus is very concerning this is very real and something that should be taken seriously also ensuring another great depression and instituting you know uh, martial law or something approaching that is also not so great um, so I mean, that's I, I, from what I understand the framework that you're coming from. Why don't you tell me what what do you think of this whole well, pandemic? One of
0: my favorite people on Twitter said, "You're trying to look at the evidence as dispassionately as possible and try to trying to wrap your head around exactly what's going on, um, just honestly and but with the facts in front of you." And Twitter has no idea how to respond to this <laughs> and, <laughs> yeah, you know, because right. that honestly it has been the way I've been looking at this. I began. My writing on this saying to people i think some libertarians are just making us look ridiculous on this not taking it seriously at all or saying oh they warned us about ebola or they warned us about whatever it was in the 1980s alar on the apples and acid rain or whatever it was and we always seem to come through all these things unscathed that's true but that is a really bad argument and i was hearing that everywhere oh it's another scare thing okay But remember the story of the boy who cried wolf? There is a wolf in the story. You know, it ends with there being (coughs) a wolf. (laughs) That's right. It's not that he just keeps making stuff up. Eventually, there really is a wolf. And so I am concerned that this damn virus is the wolf. So I was saying, look, we have to take it seriously. Let's talk about it. And so then, of course, I got all the people who because I think there are some people who are libertarians, Dave, for different reasons than I'm a libertarian. I am a libertarian specifically because I believe in non-aggression and I think the state has been a scourge on mankind and it systematically violates rights. And so that's my position. And that means that I take, I, I adopt views that are very much at odds with the conventional wisdom. I think other people are libertarians because they're just against the conventional wisdom, period, just as a way of looking at things. That's not who I am. Now, that's not to say that I think the medical profession is 100% on the up and up and they've never made mistakes and they're not blowing smoke at me half the time. You know, we've all struggled with that. But it's it's like there are some people who they've got a crazy theory about everything. And if I don't adopt their crazy theory, I must be in the pay of George Soros. And I just finally just said, I'm sick of you crazy people. I love my folks. I love them. But apparently I got a sliver of them who are going to attack me like this if I, you know, if, if, if I take the standard view on anything, anything, right. anything at all. So, so, but then the problem was, Dave, as time went on, I found that the coverage of it was so ridiculous and one-sided that now those people are making me crazy. Like, for instance, the, 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 all of a sudden it was like, I hate to put it this way because I know a memo did not literally go out. But it was like a memo went out saying, tell everybody that young people can get this, too, because all of a sudden it was stories about, hey, you whippersnappers, you can also get this. Yeah, you can. And it, it usually is not that big a deal for you is the part that they they leave out. So then there was a story from Beaumont uh, Hospital in, in Florida of a doctor saying uh, – my, my hospital is filled of 20-somethings fighting for their lives on ventilators. People said, aha, you see? We told you, young people. And then like a few days later, the hospital issued a release where he said, yeah, I pretty much made that up. Our, our hospital is not in any way filled with 20 things on ventilators, right? So, so that was annoying. Then we get this article in the New York Post. The headline is something like, 20-year-old told to go home and not worry about it dies from the coronavirus. It's not until paragraph 10 that they tell us, oh, by the way, he had leukemia. Now, again, I'm not saying it's impossible for a young person to die from this. We know that they can, but, you know, it's not impossible to get struck and killed at the Kentucky Derby either. I mean, there, there are a lot of ways somebody could die. It's just exceedingly unlikely that you're going to die that way, but they're obviously trying to to, I mean, maybe, maybe with good intentions, maybe they're, they're trying to get people to wake up and be alert to what's going on. But I, for one, don't want to be treated like I'm seven. So I start to blow the whistle on this. This is clearly an overstatement. And then I get hit from the other side. Oh, wait a minute. Now look at Woods being a crazy conspiracy guy. (laughs) Uh, So, you know, my, my refuge basically is you and the part of the problem
1: podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it does. It just seems to me like it's, it's so weird that there's that this is a problem at all for people to be like, well, obviously there's a more likely common ground here where it's like, yes. Okay. There is, I'm sorry. I don't believe that all of these scientists are lying to me and there's no such thing as this virus. This is a a ridiculous view. On the other hand, uh, like you said, I don't even care if they do have the best of intentions, your job, uh, which is this is only theoretical, not in the real world. But the job of a reporter is to report information, not to treat me like a child and to say like, "Well, I think this misinformation will create a better outcome." Like this Machiavellian, uh, you know, uh, approach of like, "We'll scare everybody or scare the young kids out of this." No, it's it's outrageous. This this clickbaity title type thing, where they a twenty year old dies and then they let you know in paragraph ten that he has leukemia. This is insane. This is such manipulation. Give it to people straight because there's actually adults out there who are trying to get this information. And the truth is, it's really very hard, you know, and part of it is um, just the nature of, of how horrible the system we live under is. Like this is, it's it's a great example of statism in, in a lot of different areas. But of course, everybody, you know, so Andrew Cuomo, the governor of, of New York, he came out one day and I I felt like he had a genuine moment where he was just trying to be a leader. And he said, uh, "In one day he goes, you know, everyone's reporting that New York is the epicenter of the coronavirus. The truth is we've just done way more testing than any other state in New York. Like they had something like twice as many tests done as California did. So when people show there's a few more cases, it's like, eh, it's actually not that clear that this is the epicenter of it. And then he dropped that. And every time since he's come out since then, he's like, this is the center of the coronavirus. And it's clear someone got in his ear and goes, there's no federal funds in being nuanced and telling people we're not actually the center of this. So shut up about that. And now he's just out being like, Trump's not sending us enough, you know, ventilators and all this. And it's just everybody between the corporate press and political leaders. Everybody's got their own little angle. And it's so frustrating because no, it's like we actually need leadership in a time like this and we're not getting it.
0: The rhetoric he's using is ridiculous when he actually says, if everything I'm doing saves one life, I'll be happy. Are you kidding me? Come I mean, if you don't mean it, then don't say that. But if that were the truth, we no one could do anything. I mean, everything carries risks. Driving a car carries risks. But And, and I know every time I get in that car, I could get killed in it. But I'm not going to give up the car because there are worse things that could happen if I give up the car. But the idea that if there were one – I mean, if we could get rid of all the pollution in the world. We could. We get rid of every single bit of pollution, and we'd also get rid of 4 billion people. You know, yeah. so, th- and, but uh, yeah, it's true. I could probably save a few people from lung cancer every year. That's true. So, in other words, we do have to think about, I mean, all the time government makes decisions about, about balancing different factors. It's not like, oh, it's just these right wingers who think you should die for Wall Street. They're always trying to decide if we have this regulation, we save, you know, one person in a million at a cost of, uh, $58,000. Is that worth doing? Maybe if not, then we do this other thing. They make these decisions
1: all the time and and, you
0: have to, because you live in a world of trade-offs.
1: And not only that, I mean, like even private actors make decisions about trade-offs all the time. And I'll, I'll give you a different example, even to make it a more clear or, or, or just a, like a different type of example where it's not even, look, we could ban swimming pools. Now, people die in swimming pools every year. Actually, a lot of people, more than you would think. And swimming
0: die. pools are not necessary. You can live without them.
1: There's nothing, right? It doesn't, there's no trade off in terms of life. That, that swimming pools uh, like produce. It's just something fun. That's an activity that people like to do when it's warm outside. But we all kind of go, instinctively, we go, no, we're not going to let the government tell us we're not allowed to have swimming pools because you got to kind of live your life. And in that sense, the trade-off is just that I get to go for a refreshing dip in the pool. And we'll accept that some people are going to die from this. That's we, everybody. I've never heard even any left wing, you know, crazy authoritarian arguing we should ban swimming pools. The truth is, we do. If you believe at all in freedom, not even necessarily me, you know, our conception of of freedom, but if you believe at all in, in the vague idea of freedom, it's like, no, we don't just allow the government to ban willy nilly whatever they want because it could potentially save one life. That's craziness. Now uh, another example, you know, back to your point, and this is something that always like really bothered me about the uh, the climate change uh, hysteria, where people will say, like, even if you if you accepted three uh, key factors about climate change, which I'm not even sure that I accept these three, but if if you were to just grant that, number one, climate change is real, the you know the climate is changing, which I think we all grant that. Number two. It is caused by man. N- number two, it's caused by man. And number three, it's going to have catastrophic effects. Uh, if, if you, Even if you grant all three of those, number four, the, the fourth thing you'd have to deal with would still be, are the trade-offs worth it of enacting whatever policy you're proposing? Because again, like you said, we could cut down on carbon emissions next year. We could say no carbon emissions by next year. However, now that solves the problem of climate change, but it would also kill millions and millions of people. So you have to sit there and go, well, actually, what's a reasonable cost compared to what you think the cost of climate change is going to be? And I have never once heard any climate change activists even address that. Like they just it's just like you either deny this or you sign on to the Green New Deal. No, no in between.
0: And the same thing is, you know, either you're completely on board with locking everything down for, frankly, an indeterminate amount of time, or you want us to die for Wall Street, or or you want right. people in your family to die. It's impossible to have a conversation with these people. So, and, and you know, you remember that, that, that time, well, I forget what the name of the MSNBC reporter was, or, or anchor, who repeated this on air, but it was a thing where Michael Bloomberg had spent so much money in his presidential campaign that he could have given every American a million dollars. Remember that? And it turns out that if they'd done the math correctly, he could have given them like a buck 50. Yeah. And so that's relevant here because the fact that that did not jump out at them as wildly implausible says something. And people say, oh, it was just a math error. It was not a math error. Fundamentally, it revealed something very important about the progressive so-called progressive mindset. Which is they really think that there's a person out there who could, if he wanted to, make everybody a millionaire. But he's just a jerk, and he refuses to do this. So they think that there is some untapped pool of magical resources we can draw on that, you know, that guy has, and that guy has, and that guy has, and we could just live off them. I mean, that one guy could have made us all millionaires. I mean, there are people whose brains are in that place. And so, of course, they look at a situation like this and they think, sure, we can stay not producing things indefinitely. Uh, And if you think there's anything crazy about that, you probably just want people dead. Yeah, Uh, that was not true
1: because it was it was on it was on one level a math error and a really big math error. So that was enough to be like, you know, it is a little bit crazy. It's not like someone just rattled off a number and got it wrong. They had a graphic up. This was in Brian Williams' studio. He asked a question yeah. yes, about this. They they planned on talking. You know, I've done several of these cable news shows. If you have a topic planned and a graphic up, minimum 10 people, absolute minimum 10 people have seen this. And yeah. nobody realized that their your math was off by a million. Like it wasn't <laughs> it wasn't just off. It was it was it was a million times off the number. So that just the math error alone <laughs> is enough to fairly right. ridicule these people, right. but, but the you are actually the fact absolutely that there was right. no
0: voice in their heads talking is what, and, ma- what matters.
1: And there is something about this, um, the progressive, um, social Democrat, or even democratic socialist point of view that, that it, it's the same flaw that they make is the the is the same reason why you could look at that as you were indicating and not a, a, immediately have alarm bells go off because you know really if that was the state of the world you could see where you'd want to be a Bernie Sanders supporter too I mean you're telling me there's one guy out there so five billionaires could get together make everybody a millionaire and they could still be billionaires and they just won't give up this money I mean what a, this is just outrageous and and it's of course, this is the, the fact that they sit there and say, and then Elizabeth Warren will say this stuff all the time, you know, for two pennies, everybody gets a free education and free right. for two, and, and nobody really gives any pushback. And they don't even understand that if you confiscated all of the billionaire's wealth, if you took all of the billionaires in America, confiscated all of their wealth, now I'm not saying their income, their entire wealth, you took all of it. It couldn't pay for two years of Elizabeth Warren's government. It's gone, and then right. the billionaires are gone too, and you have no more capital investment from rich people. You've destroyed right. the exactly. economy, and a lot of their money
0: is in the form of capital—that's uh, capital goods that are used to produce the stuff we need. So, if you really want them to liquidate all that and and sell it off for cash, then you're also destroying, you know, the structures that keep you alive. So, so then we have—I I just um, on my show—I'm going to have coming out this week in episode sixteen hundred twenty. I've got two economists on talking about the the economics of a massive shutdown, because other than wartime, I can't think of anything like this. And in wartime, it's not a shutdown as much as it is a diversion of resources into war production. But from the consumer point of view, it has the same effect. There are certain things that are not being produced anymore. And of course, during World War II, there were a variety of consumer goods. Nobody could at any price. Uh, They just they were not available. So in peacetime, though, I think this really is in the modern world has to be without precedent. So I thought, let's talk about the economics of this. And so just one point I want to make here was the first thing I asked them was when they say we're going to shut down non-essential businesses, I think right away there's a central planning mentality at work there. Because how do they know what are non-essential businesses? Obviously, when they mean essential, they mean like absolutely essential to maintaining order. So the, the people need to be fed, and there need to be police to crack their skulls if they get out of line, that sort of thing. But if you were to say, well, you're going to interfere then with the scientific research that would have to go on to find a cure for this thing, they'll say, oh, no, 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 we're going to exempt that because that would be an essential service. But you have to think back. Remember – the, the Leonard Reed essay popularized by Milton Friedman, I pencil. If you were to just sit and superficially look at a pencil and say, all right, we just want the industries necessary to make this pencil to stay running. You'd say, all right, I guess we need wood, graphite, rubber and some steel. OK, we'll keep those running. But then you've got to remember, yeah, but the guy who goes to chop the wood needs to use a saw and the saw is made out of something, you know, and, and he needs to drive there. So he needs gasoline. So he needs that to be refined. So he needs rubber made. He needs rubber in his tires. He needs an air pump. He needs all the stuff that goes in between. I mean, you realize it's so integrated and interrelated that as soon as you start saying, well, this one's not essential and that one's not essential, you don't realize how much you're breaking down this interlocking lattice work that is the capital structure, that is the economy. Uh, You need, I mean, you need air conditioning repair if you don't want the the rooms in the hospital to be 150 degrees. Right. You need replacement parts you can barely even conceive of today. So as soon as you start doing this, you're causing other problems. So there, are, so it's not just well, we'll just sit here and we'll we'll consume magical resources and then we'll just pick back up again. Well, and then you pick back up again, and meanwhile, people's retirement funds are completely decimated. Uh, but but if you are worried about that, it means you want your grandfather to die. How can you have a conversation with somebody like that?
1: Yeah, no. And, and also another thing that, you know, I um, I understand it was a politician who said this, and I'm not trying to defend him at all. Um, I'm, I'm not. And uh, people have given me a, a little bit of pushback for because I mentioned this the other day. But there was this guy, um, I, I think it was a Texas politician who was on Tucker Carlson's show. And he said he was like, we got a balance, you know, between um, destroying the economy for young people and worrying about the people who are at higher risk, who are mostly old people. And, okay, he took it in a, a, a different direction that was bad. But I, I got to say, there is something to that that I go, like, you know, I feel if I were in any way, like, the most important priority to me is that my daughter has, like, a, a good future. And I know that's the most important priority to you times five, because you've got five of them. Um there's, you know, the idea of like, how much damage is this going to cause to the future of the economy? That probably should be most people's main concern. And don't get me wrong. There's old people who I very much love too, who I don't want to lose, but nothing is more of a priority to me than my daughter. And then like the net, and I've seen this thing that really kind of bugs me. And you kind of touched on it earlier with that article about the 20 year old and, and lecture where there's this kind of demonizing of the young generation. Like it's like, oh, these, these darn millennials and zoomers and all this, and they're still out there and they're going to spring break. And, oh my God, don't you know, you're putting grandma at risk. I'm kind of like, okay. I mean, I get the point, but I don't like this idea that it's like, well, we have to protect the precious boomers. And, you know, where, where did this young generation get their poor values from? And you're like, well, really they were raised by boomers. So maybe that's where they got their poor values from. I don't know. There's something about that. That's just bothered me
0: well and not to mention of course you know doctors have to make decisions and so some people will have their health considerations displaced by i've already heard of people who, who who needed to go in and see the doctor but the doctors are saying we're only seeing coronavirus people and so there already there are decisions being made in favor of one and against the other but what what they'll come back with is oh it's exponential and that's what makes this important because obviously if you Again, if, if if all you cared about was I want to save one life and I'll shut everything down if that's necessary, then you would stop producing automobiles. But the answer, uh, because, you know, 40,000 deaths a year, you could stop those cold tomorrow by getting rid of automobiles. But the answer is, well, this is going to be exponential and you have to, you know, you have to uh, take this approach. And, and anybody who, who doesn't take that approach is some kind of a crank. Well, I was, I have to say, Dave, I was pleasantly surprised uh, by two recent Pieces I saw actually three, but the two that stand out of my mind in the New York Times of all places, one by Thomas Friedman, but that one was really derivative of one by David L Katz. Now he is the founding director of the Yale Griffin Prevention Research Center, which is funded by the CDC. So it's not Joe's medical research facility, you know, right. like, it's a real thing. And 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 I have a friend who is very well placed in the uh, healthcare industry extremely well-respected, brilliant, who disagrees with my take on this and disagrees with him, but nevertheless says he has to be respected because of who he is and how smart he is and where his heart is and everything. And he wrote this piece, and I don't know if you saw it in the New York Times, is our fight against coronavirus worse than the disease? And this article shows this no, it's not like some people want to save the old and other people just want to save the economy. That is- that division is not necessary. He's arguing that there are a number of reasons to think that our current approach is actually not helping as much as it ought to, as if we had had have a more focused approach on the most vulnerable people. He said, For example, why would you think let's send all the college kids whose infectious status we don't know home to huddle with their older parents and grandparents now? You're telling me that's the best way to prevent people from being – maybe it would be better to keep them the hell away from their grandparents for a yeah. few more months. You know, so But it's just obvious to people. Shut them down and send them all home. Maybe. I don't know. But, I mean, I could see an argument on both sides. So he's saying we would be much less likely to overwhelm our medical system if we preferentially favor the medically frail and those over age 60 and particularly those over age 70 and 80. And now you may say, oh, that can't work, whatever. He thinks it can. The point is what we know can't work is indefinitely closing. I yeah. mean, you Eventually you need resources. I mean people – and and yes, you will have suicides. There's no question about that. You're going to tell me that people who suffer from depression are going to really in, in the long run be able to sustain a regimen of social distancing? That is the opposite of what they need. I mean that, that sends them into dark places we can't imagine. But but that's not exponential, so so we shouldn't worry about it. Well, Katz says that the the approach we should take instead of trying to somehow stop the spread everywhere he says look that that horse has left the stable we can't stop it from spreading here there and everywhere what we can do for the time being is protect the most vulnerable people he says right now the plan we have if we can call it a plan he says it can't be sustained because it can't answer certain questions so he says he says for example how would we ever know when we could go back? You know, he says, when will it be safe for children and teachers to go back to school? And, and what about older teachers going back to school? When's it going to be safe for people to go back to the workplace? Uh, some of those people are going to be in the at-risk group. Is it going to be safe when we have only 300 cases a day? Do we have to wait till it's zero? Right. Um, and, and, you know, and then then he says, what if we could just focus our resources on testing and protecting the people that we know are most vulnerable and there are ways that we can do this. So we, we gradually reopen, but not just because, you know, Oh, all you people care about is the GDP going up by 0.2% extra. It's everybody, the older included, need production. We need products. We need goods. We need our retirement funds. We could have that. while at the same time making special provision for people who are especially vulnerable. Now, Maybe that works. Maybe it doesn't work. But we should at least have the conversation. Yeah. But instead, it's just like with the bailouts. We didn't have time then either. You know, it's, it's interesting. That we never have time to talk about these big decisions. That's we right. didn't have time. It was too urgent. And then after it was over, even one of the CEOs of AIG later said, you know, it probably would have been better to just let us go into bankruptcy. Right. Yeah. That's what we said at the time.
1: Yeah. So nobody never- listen
0: because there's no time to talk.
1: We never have time to talk during an emergency, and somehow in every emergency, bankers have to get filthy, stinking rich. Yeah. That's the, the, but there's never time to talk about it, and the bankers are always getting enriched by all of this. That's right. it's just a weird coincidence that that's always yeah, how it emergencies work. Just, it just work. shakes out that way. It just just happens to every time. That's just the way it works. You know, one of the, the things you touched on there that really is, this is like what made me a, a libertarian, and it's what, what keeps me a libertarian. It's why I, I have the views that I do, is that there are so many people out there, right, who think of the economy, I mean, they don't really know anything about economics, but they think of the economy as that, well, that's the stock market, that's profits. That's kind of this thing that's separate, but that's not caring about humans. That's what, you know, people over profits, all that stuff. Like, yeah. oh, we're, we're talking about people over here, not humans, but the the brand of libertarianism that you espouse, that Ron Paul always talked about was always driven by caring about people. That's what the whole thing is about. It's that the economy is not removed from people. And I think, you know, look, look, what you touched on before about people who are depressed, absolutely, that's the worst thing for them is going to be self-isolating. For people who have uh, anxiety, this whole thing is going to be very trying for them. Anybody who uh, has paranoid uh, tendencies, this is going to be a very difficult time for them. And then, you know, to go a little like butterfly effect here, what are the ramifications down the road going to be of how many people lose their jobs over this i mean when people lose their jobs this has effects on their marriage on their on their children on their families people were just starting to recover from the 2008 bubble bursting and people just starting to put their lives back together. And now we're going to be right back into another downturn. And, um, you know, this is something that you have to think about. And it seems like nobody really makes that connection that this is the economy is us. It's us. That's, that's all it is.
0: Yeah. People hear the economy and they think about the guy on the monopoly board with the monocle and sack of money with a dollar sign on it. So they can't think straight. You know, all you care about is the economy, like it's some separate thing. The economy, yeah, it's this interrelated you know, latticework of of cooperation between people all over the world. That's what the economy is, and it's an amazing thing. That's why people become economists because they observe that and they say this is an extraordinary and amazing thing that does bring people together in 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 amazing ways. Let me, if you wouldn't mind, read you just three paragraphs from this Katz article, The New York Times, because sure. it's it's interesting to note that he's emphasizing. That it's, all, it's from a medical point of view also that he takes this position. It's not just that society can't withstand this long enough. He says the medical system is being overwhelmed by those in the lower risk group seeking its resources. So that's why he's saying we have to focus on the higher risk. If we just try to have a blanket policy for everybody, are we sure that's the best approach? We're going to be wasting resources on people the vast majority of whom won't need it. Meanwhile, the most vulnerable people will go without. So this medical system, he says, is being overwhelmed by those in the lower risk group seeking its resources, limiting its capacity to direct them to those at greatest need. Second, health professionals are burdened not just with work demands, but also with family demands as schools, colleges, and businesses are shuttered. Third, sending everyone home to huddle together increases mingling across generations that will expose the most vulnerable. As the virus is already circulating widely in the United States, with many cases going undetected, this is like sending innumerable lit matches into small patches of Tinder. Right now, it is harder, not easier, to keep the especially vulnerable isolated from all others, including members of their own families who may have been exposed to the virus. Then the last paragraph, if we were to focus on the especially vulnerable, there would be resources to keep them at home provide them with needed services and coronavirus testing, and direct our medical system to their early care. I would favor proactive rather than reactive testing in this group and early use of the most promising antiviral drugs. This cannot be done across cur- uh, under current policies as we spread our relatively few test kits across the expanse of a whole population made all the more anxious because society has shut down. And then he says this focus on a much smaller portion of the population would allow most of society to return to life as usual and perhaps prevent vast segments of the economy from collapsing. Now, that seems like a balanced and humane approach to the situation to me.
1: Yeah, no, I I agree with you. And and that that it just seems to be more reasonable than the you know, what we're pursuing right now. And of course, the the thing that you touched on earlier was that, well, if your logic is that we have to shut down right now, that we have no other choice than to shut down right now, well, why would we be able to go back in a week? We're going to have the same problems in a week, in two weeks, in a month. I mean, how long can this go on before the costs that we're talking about just become apparent to everybody, and it does seem like then the um, you know the the counter that is like, well, we'll just send people checks. Nobody will produce anything, and we'll just send people checks, and so we can keep yeah. everybody at home this whole time. But of course, just common sense would have to even even just for ignoramuses out there, common sense would have to start telling you you can't just send people checks and nobody's working, right?
0: Yeah, like, that can't. Well, then why wouldn't we do this all the time? Right. You know, why wouldn't we do that all the time?
1: Like why would we ever allow anyone to go out of business? Why would we ever make anyone work? Working kind of sucks. We could just send everybody checks.
0: Send a check? Yeah.
1: Just go to some poor country and start printing money. Um well, anyway, no, that does that seems a lot more reasonable to me and at the very least these sh- things should be discussed more. Um but of course, what happens with with all of these things, just like 9/11, just like the financial crisis in 2008, is that you have a, we have a society that is ruled by these crazy sociopathic power brokers. And these things are opportunities for them. And so they jump on them to increase their power. And I am, don't get me wrong, I'm very concerned about uh, the virus, but I am i am also very, very concerned with w- where the economy is going and where the level of authoritarianism in this country is going. And at, at some point, we're going to come out of this and we'll see what we're in. What do you think, like, You know, I mean, obviously it depends on how long they shut the economy down, but guys like you and people at the Mises Institute and Ron Paul and a lot of these great libertarian leaders have been talking about for a long time now that this economy is basically all a house of cards that's propped up by easy money. And that this thing is going to fall apart. It's kind of inevitable. And now we have this situation. Now they're just trying their best to to reinflate the bubble yet again. It seems like every time throughout throughout my lifetime, every time they try to reinflate the bubble, they've got to put way more air in, and it produces a smaller and smaller bubble and a worse crash every time. What What do you think is going to happen with the economy going forward?
0: Yeah, I, well. Uh, maybe I'm a little bit more optimistic than some other uh, Austrians. I mean, the, there was a lot of disruption of production during World War II, and once that ended, the economy actually did quite well. But it did quite well because people were convinced that the federal government's days of experimenting wildly were probably over. Who can really feel that way now? What I'm mer- worried about, maybe even more than the policies, is the ideological uh the leftover ideological remnants of of this particular period in history that people will walk away from it saying when push comes to shove we can just print checks you know when push comes to shove we can just shut this sector down we can just do this and that it it, it becomes normal and i think that's the the thing that frightens me is is this type of stuff becoming normal and yeah i mean look if 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 we're not producing things or let's say a lot of production is, is, uh, is decreased, but everybody's being given checks. Well, the way they handled that in World War II was they had price controls. That was how they handled it. Because if you just let people go out and spend that money, but there's nothing to spend it on, the prices of goods have to rise in that case. So yeah. there's no question of, well, inflation can be delayed because if the banks don't lend the money and then it doesn't. No, this is a classic case of plain old, flat out, garden variety, old school inflation. If the number of goods vastly increases, then your money stretches farther. But the and, and we see that in um, in uh, technology and stuff. But if the if the amount of goods goes way down, then your money doesn't stretch as far as before. So it's not like sending people checks magically puts goods on the shelves. It just means that we're fighting with each other all the more, bidding up those goods, as in an art auction. The more people you know, you got you, you give a lot of people money in an art auction. They're going to bid higher, and you give them an infusion of cash. The bids are going to be even higher, but there's still only that one painting up for bid.
1: Right. Yeah. No. That's a great. That's a great analogy. Now, the other thing that I wanted to, because one of your one of your older videos uh, has been like going viral on uh, uh, on Facebook. I saw the other day about you talking about interest rates. I think this was it. Must have been back from around 2008, like around because you were talking, or, or maybe a couple years after talking about that financial crash, but i thought you did a great job of explaining why zero percent interest rates in a recession is actually the worst thing you can do um for the economy and of course now we're back again zero percent interest rates which i you know in my lifetime I mean I'm not That old, um, I know, like, I I always say that, I go, like, I'm really young, but then I remember thinking how old I thought 36 was when I was 18. So to some of the younger listeners, okay, yeah, I get it. I am a father pushing 40. All right, so I guess I'm not that young. But I'm not old, and um, to you guys I am, but to everyone else I'm not. Uh, But I remember a time in my life where the idea of 0% interest rates were absurd. Like, of course we're not going to have 0% interest rates. But now, once again, we're right back to that place. And once again, no end in sight. They're probably going to keep them here for a while. So what do you how would you, you know, just explain it to the layman that why do you not want to have the Fed mark interest rates at zero percent, even when there's this bad economy and we need to stimulate or something like that?
0: All right. Well, you know, the key thing would be. In probably the video you're talking about, I go through something called Austrian business cycle theory. I might not do that here just for the but it's not that hard to follow. you know, I mean, it's it's the equivalent of thinking the economy can run. It's the equivalent of thinking that you can run your life entirely powered by energy drinks. You know like you know that it can give you a little <laughs> pick me up, but you can't obviously you need some real nourishment. Oh, and right. eventually, if all you did was energy drinks, your body would catch up with that and you would just collapse and crash. And that's not a million miles removed from what happens when they do this. But I would say that the the thing I want to keep my eye on in this particular situation has to do with something I asked Peter Schiff about on my show. Now, m- most of your listeners will know Peter Schiff. You've, you've talked to Peter Schiff yes. on part of the problem, but he was a guy who was, I mean, it's not just that he predicted the problems with the housing market. I, I mean, he predicted them to a T precisely what was going to happen. and. I had him on, and I asked him, I think some of the arguments that people like you and I make about why we shouldn't have bailouts of particular firms or industries, these arguments kind of ring hollow today. Because normally what we say is we shouldn't bail out these firms because if we let them go bankrupt, this will be good because their resources – It's not like we're going to lose the firm entirely. If there's any value in what they're doing, their resources will just be bought up in bankruptcy proceedings by better managers, people who will manage those resources better, more in the service of what consumers want. And so this is on net a good thing. And this way we'll be able to take resources away from people who have been lousy managers of them. So this is a good thing. And I said, but Peter, don't you think in this situation that we're in right now with a global pandemic, like a once in our lifetimes event, Isn't it a little bit unfair to say, you entrepreneurs have been so irresponsible for not predicting this once-in-a-lifetime event coming along, and it's good that your resources get pulled away from you? Don't you think that is a little tone deaf? And he said, well, the way I look at it is this. If these companies hadn't allowed themselves to be lured into this Federal Reserve-induced pattern of operating in a debt-based way and borrowing so darn much. And instead, if they had accumulated, you know, some savings (laughs) to see them through a time like this, they could get through a few months all right. And the problem is they keep acting like this and we keep bailing them out because we say, oh, how could they have known this was going to happen? How could they have known these circumstances were going to occur? Well, they couldn't have known those particular ones. But darn it, they should know there's the prospect of something going wrong and they should have a rainy day fund (laughs) accumulated. And if they don't, then that alone means that these resources should be shuffled around. So anything, whether it's 0% interest rates or anything that encourages them to persist acting like this is socially destructive and should be discouraged.
1: Yeah, I think that's a really great point. And I I gotta say, I I think a lot of that also applies to the individual level or the family level as well. I mean, I saw people who were like, um, you know, it was like day two of schools being shut down. And they're like, how am I going to feed my kid? How am I going to do this? And I'm like, are you telling me you don't have two days worth of, like, you know, emergency funds? And I know people, listen, I, I know and I I agree with a lot of people who say, listen, the whole system, the whole crony capitalist system that we live under, it screws people over. And um the, the um, price of housing is is you know, artificially boosted up, and it makes it harder for people to afford uh, mortgages and rents and the the cost of school and the cost of all the health care and all these other things. And I, I know, I know that we have a million different ways that this system just you know is is really unfair to ordinary working class people. But I also know, how much better we have it than my grandfather had it. How much, much, much better we have it than his grandfather had it. I mean, it's just the amount of luxury that we live in. And the truth is everybody has like, you know, they have plasma TVs, they have nice cars, they have all of this stuff. And if you have all of these nice good, like luxury goods, but you don't have like a couple thousand dollars in the bank, like you're a you're a a parent, and you don't have a little bit put away just in case of an emergency. There's got to be part of that that's on you. Now I understand that's a little bit trickier of an area because once they're out, there are kids involved, and it's like you don't want to see bad things happen to to children. There's I understand, but there's got to at least be some at some point it has to be uh, addressed that you have, there has to be a little bit of personal responsibility, man. Like I know things are bad, but they're, 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 they've been worse before. And if you can't go a week, I mean, you, you, you don't have an emergency fund for a week. You got to take a little bit of a look in the mirror. Like you could be doing better than this, but, or at least the vast majority of those people could be doing better. At least that's how I feel.
0: Yeah. 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 And look, I'm sure Dave, you and I, uh, both uh, probably everybody listening to this, at least at one time or another in their lives, we know what it's like to be barely getting by. Like, we yeah. absolutely know that. But in a pinch, especially in the gig economy, you can make it work. You can figure it out. You can you can find ways to earn extra dough. And for crying out loud, jeez, you realize what people in the Great Depression would have done if they had had at their fingertips the ability to learn skills, you know, yeah. online? I, I mean, I think you and I both promote Skillshare. I mean, that thing is, a, is an MFing miracle. Yeah, <laughs> right? yeah. That is unbelievable. From your home, you can learn to do something that strangers all around the world be willing to pay you for. You know, I mean, yeah, it's going to take some work like anything. But if you really want to provide for people who are counting on you, you will make that work. You will. So, yeah, on some level, it can't all be the state, the state, the state, and the incentives created by the state, and they trap people in poverty and they do that. They, that is all true. I, I get that. But on some level, you got to you got to take responsibility for your own life at some point, yeah. somewhere. Three percent of it has to be. Yeah, good.
1: no, I, I I agree with you on that. And I, I did everything wholeheartedly uh, agree. And um, uh, of course, like I also do. I, I don't mean to, you know, sometimes I, I've heard people accuse libertarians like I, I was arguing with uh, this guy who was like a Rawlsian uh, um, Once and and he was saying that like the the big flaw that libertarians make is they feel like everything you have you've earned it like if you have anything you earned it but you know the truth is you really didn't earn a lot of the things that you have and I've I've actually never heard a libertarian actually say that not to say maybe one of them has but that's not like I don't know that LeBron James earned his natural athletic ability, I'm just right. saying it would be immoral for you to try to cut off one of his legs. So th- right. like he doesn't have, it. it's, uh, it's not me saying that it's it's necessarily justified that he has this. It's just that it's not justified for you to take it by force. Exactly. But, exactly. You know, so
0: yeah. So whether or not he does, you know, uh, let's say a champion tennis player deserves the tennis talent, uh, even if we somehow if – we, if we wanted to concede that for the sake of argument, it does not follow from that, that therefore you're entitled to take the proceeds. Yeah,
1: it's, you know, that, really, that, it's really unfair that some people are better looking than other people, but that doesn't like legitimize rape. <laughs> That's still evil, right? right? And so, by like, the to, way, some
0: people on our side want to say, well, well yeah, that person who has the, um, has the tennis talent, they had to work to build up that talent. And they think that'll answer the Rawlsian. But the Rawlsian point of view on that is the fact that you have a work ethic is also unearned. Right, right. That's also part of you that's unearned. So you can't even take credit for that. So, I I mean, I don't know how, you can't be in the same room
1: with these people. Well, (laughs) now that I think, that part I think is just complete like bogus. That's just insanity. But there is a fair point to the fact that even if I had worked as hard as LeBron James at basketball, wouldn't. I wouldn't be as good right. as him because he's got right. this natural ability. And there is something to that. I mean, listen, the, anyway, what I was saying, I am I am grateful. I don't just take it as like, oh, I'm in this position because I'm so great and such a hard worker. I'm very grateful. I'm lucky to be in the situation where I can make a living this way and that I can, uh, you know, I still – well, my stand-up gigs have all been canceled for, you know – who knows how long, uh, while I can still put out podcasts. And so I understand, and I understand there are other people who can't work from home. They, they, that at least right now, that have lo- So I I'm not, I just want to say I get that some people are in real tough times, but there does need to be some, you know, amount of personal responsibility. That can't just be thrown out the window. Um, okay, so I want to ask you this, because I feel like I have you here, and you're like the best guy to to ask this question to, because what a lot of people in the uh the general, you know, uh um public who are not in our specific, you know, libertarian world. What I've heard a lot of people saying, and I'm sure you've heard this too, is that this is like libertarianism is dead, or this proves libertarianism wrong because look, and I do, I will grant that I understand on a very surface level understanding where you would say, so what's, I mean, what's the libertarian position here that, um, that if you want to go take a walk in the park and, And, you know, you want to go hang out somewhere. The government can't tell you not to do it. You have the liberty to go spread this virus around as much as you want. Well, that can't possibly work. I mean, this is where we need rules and quarantines and things like that. And, um, you know, well, people need help, obviously, and only the government can help. So I, I understand on some level on the surface where people would be like, oh, well, how would a libertarian address this? So what would your response be to somebody who said, well, this is proof that libertarianism can't work?
0: Yeah, well, you know, let me say at the beginning, that's a tricky question that eventually I want to work out a full-fledged response to, and I haven't yet, just because I don't know all the the details of the particular situation. But first of all, one part of the answer does have to involve the, the healthcare system and the fact that the first people to actually be able to do testing for this virus were in Seattle, and they just did it against the wishes of the FDA. They just gave up waiting or the FDA, which was requiring the most ridiculous hoops for them to jump through. And this is stupid. We're just going to go ahead and do it. And so this whole thing about the, the lack of testing and this and that, this is entirely squarely at the feet of the government. So there's definitely that. Then secondly, why aren't there as many hospital beds as there should be? Now, first of all, neither you nor I happen to know how many hospital beds there should be, right? How would we know that? Um, obviously, if there were 300 million hospital beds, that's too many, and 1,000 would be too few. But we have no way of knowing that. But the marketplace is not able to to answer that because of these certificate of need regulations all over the country, where the local hospitals get to decide whether they think there's a need for another hospital in the area. Now, if Walmart and Target we're allowed to decide whether we need any other large stores in an area, everyone would immediately see through it, right? They would know there's something shady's going on here. But if it's hospitals, everybody's brain is switched on to public service. These are public service people. How could they be thinking about anything other than what's best for us? And the thing is, it's not even necessarily that those people are actively thinking, how could we screw the public? I think a lot of times, I think uh, if we're being honest with ourselves, we implicitly in our own lines make what's good for us into what's good for everyone, you know, without even necessarily thinking about it, uh, explicitly. And so that's, that's gone on. But in terms of how do you deal with people who may have some, uh, communicable disease that for which there is no known treatment and which some people die of, that's a hard question for anybody to deal with. I mean, look at, look at how the state is dealing with it. They're, they're saying, we're going to lose trillions of dollars in wealth, and we're not sure if this is going to work, but we're going to try that. I mean, that's the best they can come up with. The, the trouble is, if we had a purely libertarian society, so there's no state whatsoever, everything's voluntary, well, it, it seems pretty darn likely that people, you know, whoever, whatever community association administers the park, is going to say, we don't want grandma dropping dead, wheezing while she's with her grandkids, you know? So we're going to say, we're going to do the kinds of things that the private sector has already started to do, which would be, we'll have senior hour at the grocery store. Again, so that when people come into our store, they don't die instantly, you know, because, because that's what people want. Yeah. Um, so, but the problem com- comes when not everything is private and there are publicly accessible areas. And then what do you do? What does a libertarian do in that situation? And there. Well, I don't know in that case, because if the government owns the sidewalks, well, I mean, I don't know. The government doesn't legitimately own the sidewalks from a libertarian point of view. Really, the sidewalks are owned by the taxpayers who pay into them. But how do we exercise our ownership? I have no idea, but I have a pretty good feeling that in a pandemic, there would be some limitations on egress or something in these these areas. But I don't know what that would be. So I personally, now I'm going to think this through. But I personally think that in this type of situation, my first instinct is not, how do I be the world's greatest libertarian? That's not – that's just not my first thought. My first thought is there is the potential for this thing to be extremely deadly. So my first thought is what can we do with the, the least intrusion to save lives given that we're in an imperfect libertarian situation? I think that's the, that's the best way I can approach it, honestly.
1: Yeah, no. So I completely agree with with all of that. And I think that um, I think being a, a father, having a kid really kind of changed the way I view things on that level. And it's like, I think maybe before I would have been more. Inclined to say, like, let me be the perfect libertarian here. Whereas nowadays it's like I've kind of got a little bit more of a priority, which is priority number one, I want to keep my wife and daughter alive and yeah. safe. That's yeah. priority number one. That comes before anything else that, it, that I've read in a Murray Rothbard book. As much as I love those Murray Rothbard books, they're really great. But priority number one is keeping uh my wife and daughter alive. And I agree with you. I think a lot of the the issue that that you addressed there with the government ownership, this is some of the stuff I've been discussing and trying to work. Work out on immigration. It's very tough when the government already owns things and is making the decision to say one government's decision is libertarian and the other one is not libertarian. They're equally all anti libertarian because it should be a private property owner who is making this decision, not the government. I agree with you on that. I, the only thing I would add uh, is just that I think going forward, not only is libertarianism not dead, I think there is the real possibility for the next libertarian moment to be coming up because like it or not even if you were to grant that government crackdowns on people's freedom of movement and freedom to open their business and things like that were necessary it's like okay well going forward at some point this will this will end and what you'll be dealing with is the age of bailouts the age of 0% interest rates again The age of government uh, authoritarianism that they never exercised before that's now going to become normal, which is going to be harder and harder to roll back as every government program is. And you're going to really need a libertarian voice in this country. You're going to need some people saying like, hey, wait a minute. This is – look, the government's response to this crisis was to rob the American people blind to go uh, uh, give a huge handout to the big bankers. That was that was their initial response to it right away. It was, let me expend $1.5 trillion. Oh, that's not enough, another trillion dollars. Okay, now let's give them free money for you know as, as much as they want to then lend out to us at interest. This is all a big racket. As Murray Rothbard used to say, you're all being screwed. Um, and that that's just the reality of what's going on. And um, I think libertarians are going to have some important things to say going forward. That would be my also, guess. Also,
0: um, wouldn't you say that the the major problem with containing this thing involved the suppression of information about it by the state in oh, china absolutely
1: oh yeah yeah well it was there was a chinese doctor who blew the whistle on this thing at the very beginning they could have contained this thing completely and the chinese government suppressed them and, and you know shut them up so the, it was the, it was the chinese government then it was our government over here mismanaging the whole situation right, now is, imagine
0: if walmart had been in charge over there and Walmart had mismanaged it, or or told everybody to shut up about it. We'd never hear the end of it. I mean, now, yeah, people are upset at China. Some people are upset at China, in the abstract, but they don't realize it's the state <laughs> yes. more than China,
1: right? Uh, did you read? Uh, um, Lou Rockwell had a great piece on this yeah, that he put it was out last week, where he was defending the
0: Chinese people.
1: Yeah, he was saying and... they're not your enemy. The Chinese yeah. people are not your enemy. In this, in the same way that you. Uh, listener of mine who's in America are not the CIA, and you're not the right. Senate, and you're not the House of Representatives. The Chinese people are not their government, and by the way, they're a much more brutal authoritarian government that they don't even get the sham elections that we get. They're not represented by their government. No, the Chinese people, a lot of them, uh, ch- did the right thing and tried to help. They're not your enemy. The Chinese government is, you know, everybody's enemy, but g- well, so I'll are governments all around again. the world.
0: I've been, I've been well for long enough for me to know that, I'm, that I don't have it. But I will say the last time I was, on, I was in New York, I went to Chinatown for the first time. I've never been there before. I've been to Chinatown in London, but I've never been to Chinatown in New York before. And I did that on purpose because I, I wanted to have a meal there. And I know that Chinatowns around the world are genuinely suffering because of this. I mean, now everybody's suffering because of it, but they really were. And I wanted to go there. And so I'm glad I had a chance to do that. And, of course, I'm glad I had a chance to do it before the city shut down. I will say the New York Chinatown is vastly different from the one in London. The one in London, from what I could see, was all restaurants. The one in, the one in New York, it's like banks and dry cleaners and jewelers and, and, yeah. and shops. And It's like a community within a community. It was very interesting to see. But the other thing was, have you, have you been there before? Oh
1: yeah, many times.
0: Yeah, you you cannot walk one block in some parts of it without being offered uh a, a watch, um yes. a necklace. I I've I've never seen anything like it.
1: Yes, down around Canal Street and none of that stuff is real. I hate to burst your bubble. I know you got a I new Rolex watch and a <laughs> new uh, I know you but I, I that's not a real Rolex. I hate to tell you. Tom, you didn't get a Rolex for $5 <laughs> by the way on uh, on Canal Street. But so you just saw that there were uh the- and you wanted to help them out a little bit. I gotta say, Tom, you're not being a very good neo Confederate. You're just not. You're di- you're disappointing me. You're I'm not the world's being... worst neo Confederate. Really. You are you are the world's worst secret bigot that I've ever met, and I've yeah. always been disappointed in, in in you for that. I'm disappointed in the Mises uh, Institute for being the world's worst secret Nazi organization. I I, you know, I really
0: thought it was. I'm gl- so glad you pointed it out. That that Lou wrote that piece, yeah. reminding people that that the that in any way, even indirectly drumming up dislike of a particular people because of the policies of its state or because of something they obviously have no control over is uh, is that's the kind of thing the state does.
1: I've never it's a beautiful city. Yes, these, are, these are beautiful people. Yes. I've never seen a bigger disconnect in my life between uh, how a human being is demonized and who they actually are as a person more than Lou Rockwell. I've never seen oh, anything. Yeah. He is literally—he's such a wonderful human being, the nicest everyone, guy in the world. Everyone to who's everyone. met him says this. He—he he was so unbelievably kind to me and my wife. Uh, uh he's been so kind and supportive to me. People, de- it—it's it, like no, trust me. He's this secret, like horrible person deep down. He's like ha 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 ha, and he hates everyone. And then you go to the Mises Institute, and like you come up and like Lou Rockwell's like feeding a bottle to like a, a baby goat or something. And he's like, hello, friend, <laughs> come on in. And you're like, was it, or weren't you supposed to be a demon of some sort? And he's like, hey, I remember, would you like some I, food?
0: This is not the best story in the world, but I do remember this is Lou Rockwell, founded the Mises Institute. There was a student there for the Mises University summer program. And he didn't know who Lou was and went up to him and was saying, hey, how come I don't have any pillows in my room? And Lou, instead of saying, Hey, you little snot ball. How, how dare you address me that way? You know, Lou went out of his way to make sure the kid got pillows. You know what I mean, that's just, yeah.
1: he's just the sweetest human being. He doesn't have a hateful bone in his body. Uh, these people who that's make silly. him out to be this guy. And then of course, like if you, if you read, I love if you read his book, like, cause there'd be these people who'd say, no, I'm telling you Lou Rockwell's like a, a secret racist. I know there'd be, you know, people, idiots online, you know, the ninnies and, uh, and so, and I would go, have you read his book, uh, against the state An anarcho-capitalist manifesto? And, I, and they'd be like, well, no, I've never read the book. I was like, of yeah, course, I, I've you never haven't.
0: read anything. <laughs> of course. <laughs> re- of course. I you read have. three things that he is supposed to have written over the past 50 the, years that the, were forwarded to me by some guy. <laughs> yes, like, That's a- he
1: writes, he writes an anarcho-capitalist manifesto. Okay. This is his manifesto of why you should be an anarcho-capitalist. Chapter one is about the wars. And how many Muslim people have died. And how horrible it is because of the human toll. Chapter 2... The war on drugs and what it's done to minority communities and how it's created these black markets for crimes and lock people. These are like when he was writing his manifesto, he was like, these are the most important things that I want to talk about. Like, it's just anyway, the disconnect is is ridiculous. But if you ever do get the chance to meet him, really great person.
0: Well, I'll, let, me, let me add one other thing. Sure. He is so attacked, as you say. And yet, have you ever once seen Lou defend himself? No. In an article, do in a speech, not he has never once bothered to address these people. And Shoot. Dave, I have to say, there's part of me that considers that to be so badass. Like I can't believe somebody who's that badass. You know? Yes, but like I Hans will. Hoppe generally ignores them. Not always, generally. Lou always ignores. Them. And I, so I finally asked him, "Why? Why don't you say anything?" He says, "I don't have time. I don't. I don't care." So yeah, I defend him against these people. <laughs> He does not defend himself.
1: It it actually is to a level that it infuriates me because there are yeah. things that he's accused of that he absolutely did not do. Yeah, he did and the he opposite of. He yeah. won't just set the record straight because he's like, well, no, I'm not even going to address that. And then you'll kind of be like, well, can we all go set the record yeah, straight? Right. And he's <laughs> exactly. like, no, 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 I don't want to. And you're like, please, please, can we? Do? But that's that's him. He's like uh, he is. I remember he described uh, Ludwig von Mises this way. And I described uh, Ron Paul and Lou Rockwell this way from the way I've met them. And I'm just stealing what Lou said about Mises. But it's the same way I feel. He goes, they're they're just two men who are from an older, better generation. That you're just like they just have this kind of dignity of uh, about them that you're like oh they just they just don't make yeah. men that that way anymore and did uh, no, they didn't anyway. make
0: me that way that's for damn
1: sure <laughs> <laughs> all right Tom well listen uh, I I very much appreciate it. it's it's always such a pleasure to talk to you and I really appreciate you sharing your insights with me and my audience of course the Tom Woods show uh, which you can get everywhere it's on iTunes and all that stuff and if people want like your uh to get all your free eBooks what's the website for that again.
0: Well, the best way to get it is just get the most recent one, which is AOC is Wrong, and that's at AOCiswrong.com. And and that one, you think, oh, I kind of know the arguments against AOC. Well, suddenly everybody supports the AOC look at the world, you know, the way they've responded to this thing. So it's it's a very, very helpful book. And I might add, Dave, I forgot that we do video for your show. I I probably, you probably can't see it, but I, I wouldn't have worn a slam death metal shirt during this, because it probably would scandalize people.
1: <laughs> you knew, you knew what you were doing. No, I don't think we can even see that part of it. But okay, on right, some level, on some level, you knew what you were doing, Tom. That's what that's what I want to say. All right, well, Tom, uh, it's it's great to talk to you as always. Uh, uh, let's do it again sometime soon. And uh, thanks everybody for listening. That's what you call a heck of a bonus episode, right there. All right, thanks for listening, everybody. Goodbye. All right, folks, let's see what's going on
0: here. If all goes well, tomorrow we'll have investor Doug Casey back on the show, and he'll try to navigate us through these crazy waters we inhabit right now. Then Wednesday, on a completely different topic, cannot be coronavirus all the time. Just can't. I refuse to. The terrorists have won, if that's all we talk about. We're going to have some semblance of normal civilization here. So we're going to have Dr. Deidre Berzer on the show, and she's going to talk about Latin American history. She just did a course for us on that at libertyclassroom.com. And that's one of these subjects you just can't get a good take on because everybody who covers it's a Marxist. So it's wonderful to have her course and to be able to talk to her. So some fun stuff still to come this week. So make sure you subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, tomwoods.com slash Apple. And uh, if you like and appreciate what I'm doing here, then make sure and become a supporting listener. Man, do you get nice benefits over at supportinglisteners.com. Thanks for listening. Become a smarter libertarian in just 30 minutes a day. Visit tomwoods.com to subscribe to the show for free and we'll see you next time. Like the sound of The Tom Woods Show? My audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at podsworth.com.